All right, so Elena, uh, you have done a very interesting show, and I'm going to as uh, assume that um, this was uh, an inspiration that you had, um, and you can tell me uh, differently, but um, the uh, exhibit you've put together tells, as you say, an untold story of women in music. Presumably you're talking about primarily New Orleans, is that right? Yes, it's a New Orleans-centric exhibit. Right. So um, what did you learn when you looked into the question of where are all the female musicians in our history? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because um, when I started working on the exhibit, uh, it was my idea. I've always been interested in gender studies, so it was something I wanted to work on. And then right after I reserved the gallery, Sylvia Fry reached out to me with NOLA for Women and said that they were working on a series of exhibits for the tricentennial and asked if we'd be interested. So it just worked out perfectly that I was already planning to work on that. Um, but what I wanted to do when I started looking at women in New Orleans music, and of course, many exhibits and studies in the past have been really wonderful, but they focused primarily just on the musicians. And often women were singers and pianists, so that's been talked about a good deal. Not that you can ever talk about it too much. Um, but what I wanted to do was look at all of the ways that women have participated in music. So not only were there musicians, um, piano players, singers, but also uh, untraditional instruments as well. Uh, one of my favorite photos in the exhibit is from the St. Philip Street Church of God in Christ, and it has uh, two ladies, one's playing a bass drum and one has the cymbals. It's really a, a beautiful photo. They're just showing that women did not just play the piano or, or sing as their, their instruments. So I was looking at that, and then I just got to thinking about all of the different ways that women have participated. Um, so early on, New Orleans was a huge sheet music publishing center, the Tin Pan Alley of the South, some people called it. Um, and there were actually a great deal of female composers publish music um, through the various publishing companies in New Orleans or even self-published music. So I wanted to feature those ladies also, we were interested in looking at how women in academia have fared in jazz studies and um, musicology, as well as private organizations, um, so non-academics, but people in the New Orleans Jazz Club and um, also people working with social aid and pleasure clubs. Now, tell me, tell, let, let's uh, explore that a little bit because I think uh, my listeners are going to be fascinated to kind of hear their stories come back to them. And um, it, it struck a chord for me when you talked about how important women were in the family setting and how they encouraged the young musicians. And I remember the story of, uh, from Alan Toussaint t talking about an aunt who um, uh, uh, secured a piano for him to be able to play and learn on. And, um, and I've heard that story over and over again, how there was a, a grandmother or an auntie or a mom in the family who 
um, facilitated the development of a, of a musician's career. look at what I call the matrifocal component. So male musicians during the uh, 20th century that were either raised by not necessarily single mothers, but by grandmothers and godparents. Um, and there were dozens of people that I was able to verify just from within our oral history collection. Um, some notables like Louis Armstrong, of course, uh, was raised predominantly by his grandmother, but also by his mother at times. And his grandmother had a profound influence in, in his life. Um, how how so? Tell me, were, tell me a little bit more about that. Well, sure. Well, his mother sent him to live with his grandmother once she and the father split up. Some people um, think she may well have been a prostitute. That's never been verified, but given the, the time and the neighborhood that she lived in, uh, it's a definite possibility. But he went to live nearby with his grandmother. His mother was still in town, and she took him to school and tried to teach him right from wrong, and he talks about her extensively in his uh, autobiography, uh, Satchmo, My Life in New Orleans. So he lived with her for years and then was very sad, but also felt like he needed to go help his mother, who had briefly gotten back with his father, who had never been in his life and had another child. So she was very sick, and he went home to help care for his sister and to stay with his mother for a time before he went back to stay with his grandmother. Hmm. Um, so that's just yeah. one of, of many stories. But, of course, there were wives. Uh, you can imagine when many people working in music, they also had a day job, so they would work full-time doing um, something else. And then they would also rehearse and play music. And for the most part, there was always a woman at home that was in part facilitating um, them being able to do that and to have that career. Um, people like Blanche Lane that was married to, to Papa Jack Lane, an early um, jazz musician. She would let different musicians sleep at their house. She would sew uniforms for them and repair things. So there are all these different ways that women were involved that I'll call them quiet ways. There's not much quiet about it, but these are not obvious ways. They don't get the recognition that... Right Right. What about the composers? Tell me more about them. Mm -hmm. So, a lot of the items that I've pulled are from our Louisiana sheet music collection. So, all of the titles range from 1830s to the 1930s. Um, there are titles by Regina Morphy Voce, the Algiers Bell, among others. Um, we also have some wonderful folios from our Maxwell Sheet Music Library. Um, so there are dozens of these folios that young ladies, since it was common for women to take piano as a, a ladylike art that they would have in higher class families, 
and they would have these lovely folios made at different stores in town with bound pieces of their favorite sheet music or sheet music that they were working on for class. So we had these beautiful artifacts that these women handpicked and created about 80 of those and I have a couple on display in the collection. So yeah, so tell us what can somebody expect to see um, when they go to your exhibition, and also give us a little bit of context about the Hogan Jazz Archive, because a lot of people really don't know much about it. Bill, yeah. Of course, a lot of us know Bill Russell for the uh, record store that he had on Magazine Street. That was where you yeah. went to get that that record you couldn't find anywhere else. <laughs> but um, so so going forward, uh, I assume Hogan, uh, the archive, is still in the process of collecting new material. So that must be quite a contrast to be collecting work that's going on now in our music community, which is so different, you know, from the funk and sissy bounce and all of the, you know, the contemporary music forms from the jazz, or do you still stick with jazz? Well, we have expanded our scope. When we first started as an institution, there was real tunnel vision for traditional New Orleans-style jazz. You know, it was a, a sacred art form to, to Bill Russell and to Dick Allen. So over the years with different curators, that's been expanded. So now we do collect more on things like the Mardi Gras Indians or uh, other related art forms 
that weren't included when we first started out. Now, of course, that's difficult to do. Um, R&B, for example, we had a big blind spot in the collection because uh, that was not considered um, worthy of the collection development policy here when we started. Oh, how so times change. Trying to. Oh, I know. <laughs> Really? So we're wow. To fill those, fill those holes. And we've had a couple of articles in our jazz archivist over the past few years that are devoting some, some more attention. To so if, 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 if contemporary modern jazz wasn't being included, that means music by Wynton Marsalis and Terrence Blanchard and Nicholas Payton and all of these people, um, that wasn't, wasn't there yet. So where to, to see the show uh, about the women in, in music in New Orleans, where, where exactly do people go? I always like to make it very easy for folks to get there. I'm sure anybody who's listening to the show couldn't uh, guide all of that. So I'm sure it's all online. So where can somebody go online to, um, to get the information? You can visit our website at jazz.tulane.edu. That's easier. That's easier. Jazz.edu. Uh, <laughs> do that again, jazz. Now, do you know anything about, um, in, in the material that I got from you all at Tulane, I also got uh, a notice about the dedication of the Louis Prima Room. Do you know anything about that to give us just a little tip on that? Or is sure, that... that's actually what I've been working on most of the day. Oh, okay, good. So tell me about that. Yeah, we're, sure. So we just took in the Louis Prima collection from uh, the Prima Foundation that his widow, Gia, ran. And we received the physical collection at the very end of August, so we're processing that at present. Uh, but part of the work with the foundation was to dedicate uh, room to Louis Prima. So that's next door to the archive in room 306. It was previously the rare book room in Jones Hall, if anyone had visited it in that capacity. So we've been renovating the room, just got the carpet done, and are hanging some other items in there today. And that's that going to be open day. when? When does that open? That's uh, festivities. The dedication of the room is going to be on the 
27th, the evening of the Friday the 27th. 27th. Uh huh. So after that point, uh, it's going to be open to an extent. We hope to have it completely up and running by December of this year. So we're going to have two workstations, two computers that will have photos and hopefully some videos. We're having some things digitized by an outside company right now. So mm-hmm. users will be able to visit those, but then there's also LPs and 78s and 45s and um, some great sheet music, wonderful photography that I've been processing, um, going back to Prima's childhood all the way up to the end of his life. So some really wonderful items and hopefully he'll get the some of the respect that he Right, and 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 I see, I see that he uh, came, he was raised in uh, the Treme area. You don't know exactly where his family lived, do, do you? I don't know the exact address. Yeah, I I'm just curious because I, I live in Treme, so I'm sort of uh, fascinated to kind of check oh, in yeah. on uh, where his home was. Maybe someday you'll let me know. But um, listen, kudos to you and everybody else at the Hogan Jazz Archive for um, giving our musical heritage its, its due respect and um, f- certainly for um, doing something to acknowledge the role um, the women in our city have had in, in, in our musical traditions and getting in the room open for Louis Prima. Um, you're, you're much younger than I am, but I grew up on Louis Prima, was, was right in there, believe it or not, right in the middle of all our uh, rock and roll and R&B and early, um, kind of the late ballroom music of the 40s that you heard on the radio. Louis Prima was one of the big stars. We could sing all his songs. So thank you. And um, y'all uh, go check out what this um, library has. You just would be amazed at uh, what you can access. And those of you who have children who are interested in music, um, you need to take them and visit. So once again, to find that the easiest thing is to do jazz at tulane.edu. That's the, uh, the email address. So it's jazz.tulane.edu for the website. Jazz.tulane.edu. I'm sorry, I'm not writing anything down, so I don't have it in front of me, but great. And um, congratulations to you. Just to reiterate, we we are open to the public. I know that's one of the most common questions that we get, but everyone from from the community is welcome. You do not need to be a Tulane student or or staff person to do research with us, so come by anytime. And here's my my final and and uh, perennial question: Where to park? Well, that's difficult. <laughs> there is Maybe people some, should bike ride there. <laughs> that's that's ideal. There is some metered parking in the uh, Newcomb parking lot between our building and the main library, but that's limited to forty five minutes. Uh, often, our researchers will find a street close by that is in a non-residential area if they want to spend more time with us. You can also purchase daily parking passes from the Debol parking complex, but that's still a bit of a walk from, to the building. So those are your three options here. Okay. Not the greatest options, but it's worth it. All 
right. Well, listen, thank you so much, um, Elena, and um, uh, all power to you, and thank you for doing it for our music in our city. Oh, thank you so much for having me on and for everything that, that you do. Thank you. You take care. Bye-bye. Yeah.